If you think about it, none of us should be here at all. It is only because of Christ being our living hope that we are. Really extraordinary that someone who came to the earth half a world away would have any bearing whatsoever on what we do on this day. And yet, because of who Jesus is, he does. I hope that you'll be able to be back with us uh, this evening uh, for the new members' fellowship. As I was looking through the names and faces uh, there in the bulletin, it just brought my own heart joy to think and to look through uh, these people and think how God has brought them to us just over the last year. Um, this extraordinary blessing, and we're so grateful for them. And I hope that many of you, them you've already gotten to know, and tonight will be further opportunity to do that. And uh, we are grateful for how God keeps making uh, people a part of this local body, and we trust that he will help us serve well together. As an additional bonus this evening, uh, Matthew Bixby, who was here with his wife Susan back a few weeks ago for interview, and since has been, you know, they serve in Monterey, Mexico, um, but they've not only been visiting churches, they also went to Spain to take part in a conference on expository preaching there. And uh, they are back briefly before they head on uh, back home. And so I've asked him if he would uh, speak tonight. So he's going to do the first installment um, of our teaching on Abraham as we look at people of the promise. Uh, he's all ready to do not just for kids and the whole, the whole thing. So I'm looking forward to it. As Mary Ellen and I got to know uh, Matthew and Susan this past summer, uh, one of, one of my, my heart for you was that you would have more exposure to him as well and to the ministry that God is using them to do. And so he'll be ministering to you, and I'm grateful for that. Um, talking about fruitful ministries and extraordinary ministries, you could hardly find a more extraordinary ministry than that of John the Baptist in the first century. I want you to kind of, kind of travel back with me of what that would have been like. I mean, people were flocking to John the Baptist from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region of the Jordan River being baptized by him and confessing their sins. Now, you know, try sticking uh, a man that's oddly dressed, uh, that eats on a kind of subsistence diet, um, Though he's from uh, uh, the tribe of Levi, he's not serving uh, in the temple. He's out. He's out even beyond where Pickens would be. I mean, he's he's like in in Pumpkin Town, or he's you know he he's gone to this kind of you know we all know in real estate it's location, location, location. But he's he's out in nowhere's land, and and yet people are flocking to him because it's so obvious that the power of God is on him tax collectors and soldiers and prostitutes. I mean, that's not like, you know, when you talk about church members, it's, oh, yeah, we've got X number of tax collectors. And in that day, that meant, think about um, if Russia or China took over the U.S. and you had people that collected taxes for them, how you'd feel about that. Well, that's how the Jews felt about tax collectors collecting taxes for Rome. Um, they were notoriously crooked in their dealings because they could, they could add a lot more to what they were taking than what was, was necessary and become rich on the backs of their countrymen. 
And then soldiers, I mean, they're like the emblem of uh, being under the oppressing power of Rome. And, and then prostitutes who are making their living, um, for whatever reason, though, being used to destroy families. And yet these, even these, are drawn to this powerful preacher. And it's not just that they find him attractive. It's not just that they come as they are and they stay as they are. They're actually confessing their sins. And, and they're asking how their lives should change. And he's given them clear direction. And so you have this phenomenal ministry uh, going on. It's not just the religious folk. It's everybody impacted by this extraordinary preacher dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. And, and it's just causing quite a stir. In fact, his ministry was so extraordinary, he was a voice crying in the wilderness. Um, <laughs> We're just trying to add a little drama, if we could put some music with it. Um, so, we are blessed with, with lots of families, uh, growing families, and as parents try to train their kids to be part of the service, we, we, it makes it exciting sometimes, so we're good with that. But John's ministry was so extraordinary that, that people were wondering whether he might even be the long-awaited Messiah. No one still living in Israel had ever seen anything like it. It had been four long centuries since God had sent a prophet to them at all, and now a prophet greater than any before him has come on the scene. But in the crowd, there were also those that John called vipers, poisonous snakes, self-righteous in their superiority and unrepentant of their sins. The supernatural work God was doing through John was a threat. It was a threat to their civil power and their religious power. And they were there to confront this rogue prophet on behalf of powerful men back in Jerusalem that had sent them to put John the Baptist to the test. We read about some of their questions last week. They were trying to figure out who he was. And his answer was that he was not the Messiah. He was not Elijah. He was not the prophet Moses had foretold would come. His answer is found in John 1.23. He said, I am the voice. I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah foresaw the day that this man would show up on the stage of history. Well, that answer led to their asking follow-up questions. And that had to do with what right he had then. If he's not Christ, if he's not Elijah, if he's not the prophet, he's just a voice, why are you baptizing? What gives you the right to do that? And we're not surprised that the ones asking the question, the one that motivated the question, were the Pharisees. They were, they were very precise about following the rules, not only biblical rules, but all the rules they'd added to help you follow biblical rules. And so they had come. Verse 24, we pick up our reading. We're kind of in the middle of that conversation. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, remember Christ is a title, it's the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you, stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, 
the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward them and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. He might have known Jesus as a cousin, but, but not necessarily that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, earlier in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we find words about John's mission. In John 1, 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Remember, the light was the word that was God and that was with God and was the light and the life of men. He, that is John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John had been sent to make Jesus known. And if we're to understand who Jesus really is and to respond the way we ought to, we must listen to the testimony that John the Baptist gave. What did he proclaim about Jesus? Well, first, as we've sung about a good bit already this morning, he proclaimed him as the sin-removing Lamb of God, verse 29. And then he also talked about his being the exalted baptizer with the Spirit. In fact, the bulk of, of the words that are in our text are about this role that Jesus has. And then finally, in verse 34, he is the Spirit-anointed Son of God. So look at the, those descriptors of Jesus and what we want to do is explore the significance of those titles and then how we ought to respond to him. First, the sin-removing Lamb of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now those words, the Lamb of God, immediately call to our mind God's institution of the Passover. On the night before the Israelites left the slavery of Egypt, God brought down on Egypt one final plague. It was the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. All of Egypt that night was crying out. Only those households who had smeared the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorposts and lentils were delivered from the death of their firstborn in their household. They were passed over, hence Passover, God made it a yearly festival to remind Israel how he delivered them with a mighty arm from their slavery to Egypt after 400 years there and delivered them not only from Egypt, but delivered them from the death angel that was bringing down judgment on the land. And so the whole sacrificial system that God instituted through Moses called for killing an innocent life in place of guilty lives to atone for sin. In fact, God had actually instituted it clear back with Adam and Eve. But in the Mosaic system that Israel knew, 
Moses was the one that set this up, and we learned that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There has to be an innocent life that pays for guilty lives for them to be free from the penalty of sin. But it only makes sense that animals could not possibly free me, a human being, from my sin. That shouldn't be enough. And the question is, then, what human being can be an innocent life given for guilty lives? Only one in all of human history, the God-man Jesus Christ. He is unblemished. Jesus, therefore, is the Lamb of God. That's the language John uses. The ultimate lamb toward which all the lambs on Jewish altars slain have pointed. They, they were only symbolic of the sacrifice that could actually take away human sin. This is the lamb that God himself has provided to take away our sin. The very one that Isaiah 53 foretold would come. He was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not defend himself, even in those horrible trials that he went through. Um, he gave answers where he needed to give answers, but most of the time he kept silent. He did not defend himself. Jesus came not just to take away the sin of Jewish worshipers. John introduces him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world, not just Jews who had known about the Passover and had practiced sacrificing lambs. John Calvin made these comments on this verse. Every kind of unrighteousness which alienates men from God, is taken away by Christ. And when he says the sin of the world, he extends this favor indiscriminately to the whole human race, that the Jews might not think that he had been sent to them alone. The whole world is involved in the same condemnation. All men, without exception, are guilty of unrighteousness before God, and they need to be reconciled to him. John the Baptist intended to impress upon us the conviction of our own misery and to exhort us to seek the remedy. Now, our duty is to embrace the benefit which is offered to all. Well, how do we do that? We do so with faith that Jesus Christ can and will do what he as the Lamb of God came to do. Now, John is not teaching that, that all will eventually be saved from their sin. That's called universalism. Christ and his apostles clearly teach that many will be eternally condemned. But all who trust in Christ as their Savior, their sacrificial lamb, are washed clean from their sin and released from their deserved condemnation. This was John's introduction of Jesus to the world. This is the one that came to set you free. This is why tax collectors and prostitutes and soldiers knew there was an open door for them to finally get right with God, no matter how black 
how corrupted their life's career had been. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is how John first introduces Jesus, his divine mission to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself, redemption from sin and its curse of suffering and death depends entirely on this one person, Jesus Christ. There is no other redeemer. There is no one else who can ransom us with his blood but Jesus. There is no other way to clear our sin from our record before God. There is no other way to wash it from our souls. And so any form of so-called Christianity that sees Jesus as merely a good example and a great teacher is not the Christianity of the New Testament. It is mere man-made religion as powerless to remove sin as any other form of self-improvement or human ceremony. And any form of Christianity that says that sin doesn't matter isn't Christianity. Because this is what Jesus came to do. We tend to either make our sin insignificant you know, we, we figure if you can't beat it, just join it. Or we tend to be overwhelmed with despair about it. The coming of Jesus is the answer to both issues. If the sin of the world required the atoning death of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus the God-man, the eternal word, the light and life of humanity, then sin is no small matter. It is our worst crisis. It is our greatest plague. But with the coming of Jesus, we find certain hope to be freed from our worst crisis and greatest plague. Just as the Israelites applied the blood to the lintel and doorpost of their homes and were thereby spared the deadly judgment of the death angel passing over them, so we are spared from the wrath of God that our sin deserves, the blood of the Lamb washes us clean and not just where we feel better about ourselves but where we are right with God himself forever this is what John who wrote this gospel taught us in his letter of first John this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk, while we live our daily lives in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's the way modern age likes to do. Let's just redefine sin. If sin's a problem, let's just redefine it. Let's write it out of the dictionary. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can God be faithful and just and, and, and forgive sinners and let them off the hook? Well, because he paid the price to set them free through the Lamb of God. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The redemption Christ brings goes further yet. I got reflecting on that phrase, taking away the sin of the world, and I got thinking about the impact of removing sin, and, and I was reminded that one day all creation itself 
will be set free from the bondage to the curse of sin. Remember, we study about it in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If I am bound in my sin, I am not free. If I can find no way to be released from my guilt, I am not free. If, if I can't somehow break the power of sin over my life, I am not free. But through Jesus, I can be free. And that freedom makes sense not just to people, but to the entire universe. Second Peter talks about it. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There are a lot of good things in our world. There's a lot to praise God for. There's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of, of righteousness. But right now, this is a world where sin dwells. And we need release from it. This is why there's death and dying. This is why there's disease and illness. This is why there's cruelty. This is, this is why there are earthquakes and tsunamis and all the things that are so destructive in our world. These things are all to be found. The root is to be found, the poison root of sin, when we rebelled against our Creator back in the garden. Jesus came to fix that. So what sins do you need to turn away from? You know, you might be a professing believer, and you might actually be a believer, but perhaps you've, you've kind of given a pass to some sins because you can't seem to root them out. What sins do you need to turn away from, repent of? John the Baptist's ministry is about repentance. And, and what have you done about that sin guilt? Are you trying to bear it yourself or excuse it as unimportant? Bearing it yourself will crush you with despair. Excusing it will lead you to prideful self-righteousness. Either way, sin will continue to reign over you. You need to look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away your sin guilt, to take away your sin stain, and to break its iron grip on you. This is Jesus the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Second, John introduces him as the exalted baptizer with the Spirit. In verse 26, we read John's words. John's answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And then in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, remember that he's giving, he's talking about this baptism. 
his baptizing with water and Jesus baptizing with the Spirit in answer to the question, why, what gives you the right to baptize? Where is your authority? The Pharisees have not died out. They're worried about your credentials. They're worried about the form that your religion is taking. They're big on debating the the mode of baptism and who's doing it. They obsess on ceremonial questions. And that is human tendency. We make big things out of small things. Many people obsess over the ceremonies of religion and miss the point. Miss the core issue. John the Baptist was a servant of God, but he was not the life giver. Baptizing people with water can only symbolize their cleansing. It can wash their bodies, but not their souls. It cannot give them life. Only God can give spiritual life. So the question is, do you have life? And do you know the one who can give it? John the Baptist was a servant of God, but he's not the life giver. Jesus is. And that's why John said he was not worthy to do even the lowliest of tasks for Jesus, that of untying his sandals. In fact, I read somewhere that that you weren't even allowed to make a slave do that for you. I don't know if that's true or not. I didn't live back then, but that's what somebody said was so. It's clearly, you know, it it would be a, a form of humility to say tie my shoe. You know, we just don't go around doing that to people. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Jesus is so exalted. John, and and when we think about it here, John is the greatest of the prophets, according to Jesus. I mean, and, and all the people flocking to him demonstrate that. But he could not compare to the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God. John was practicing what the Jews practiced when a Gentile, a non-Jew, converted to worshiping the God of Israel. They baptized them. It was a way of identifying that person with the worshipers of the true and living God. But John wasn't just baptizing Gentiles who were crossing over to Judaism. He was baptizing Jews too. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was about getting right with God. It wasn't about just being among the people of God. And that caught the Pharisees' attention. This just was not done. They did not think Jews needed to be baptized. John wants them to understand that no ritual can make a person clean on the inside or bring life to a person who's dead in trespasses and sins. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And Jesus the Messiah the anointed one, anointed with the Spirit, is the one who came to give the Spirit to those who trust in him. In fact, he cries out in John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You've got to sense your need. If you don't think you have need of Jesus, then you're not coming to him. 
If you don't think you have need of cleansing, if you don't think you have need of life, then you're not going to be interested. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, John explains, this is John the Apostle explaining, he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He hadn't finished his mission yet. Nothing less than being born again by the Spirit of God will do for us. If we want life, if we want to be part of the kingdom. This is what what Jesus taught Nicodemus on that night that Nicodemus came to see him. He's saying, you're doing these amazing miracles that that only somebody from God could do. And and Jesus knows that Nicodemus is is not asking so much about Jesus and his miracles as to who Jesus is. And maybe he's the Messiah who's going to bring the kingdom of God. And Jesus answered him, but he gives him an answer that doesn't seem to match the the question. It was actually a statement. Nobody but God could do these things. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He knew what Nicodemus was longing for in his heart. And he cut to that. He knows your heart too. He knows your heart. He knows you better than you know yourself. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's debate about whether he's referring to the water of the word or the water of baptism. For, for our purposes today, we're not going to answer that question. And I kind of, today, I want to say it's baptism because we're talking about John the Baptist, but I think... I think it's probably the water of the word, but the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He has to be born of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In fact, water could even refer to just natural birth. Do not marvel. Don't be amazed, I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. By the way, the word for wind and spirit and breath are the same word. So he's doing kind of a play on words here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. When you say it's windy today, how do you know if you're looking out the window? You don't don't know because you're seeing the wind. I mean, if you can see the wind, you're in trouble. Okay, so it's got so much debris in it. It might be a tornado or something like that. But, But we can tell it's windy by whether the leaves are blown by the wind. Um, We see the effect of the wind, and we see the effect of the Spirit. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Someone who's born of the Spirit shows the effect of being born of the Spirit. Someone who has life behaves differently than someone who's dead. And that was the point. So to those who believe in Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. This was a gift from Jesus to those who believe. He's the baptizer with the Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So you see what John is getting at is that this isn't about religious ceremony. This is not about adding to your to-do list and and adding to your not-to-do list. This is about having life power from God that has flowed into you like a rushing stream of water. 
and now flows out from you because you're changed from the inside out. This is what John is saying. And this is what Jesus brought. He is the, he's the exalted spirit baptizer. So what are some ways that people, maybe even you, try to find spiritual life apart from Jesus? I mean, we, we read different books, we have different experiences, we, you know, we can be helped by different things, but those can't replace Jesus. You've got to have Jesus because it's only through Jesus that you can have this life-giving spirit. And if you're trusting in Jesus, what evidence do you see in your life of the spirit's life in you? You know, and, and evidence is, is not just that your clothing fashion changed or you started cutting your hair differently or you now have a different Sunday schedule. It's things like love and joy and peace and patience. That's patience with people and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit grows from life. This is what John's saying. I'm just doing water. Jesus is going to do spirit. He, he's going to immerse you into the spirit, and the spirit will become part of you. If you believe you're a Christian, is this, this spiritual life evident in you? Or is all you can point to is some kind of ceremonial correctness. Maybe, maybe it's all about your clothing. Well, you know, John wasn't exactly dressed appropriately. Or maybe it's about your diet. Did you see what his diet was? People debate over music style and Bible translation you use and what the service times ought to be and uh, how much skill organizers have, whether the website looks pretty or not. And it's not that those things don't have a place, but they're not the issue. The issue is, do you have life from the Spirit that Jesus gives? That's the issue. And I tell you one thing I've noticed over the years, that people that are all hung up on all the externals and all the ceremonies can't see when there's life right in front of them. John the Baptist came to introduce a person that wouldn't offer you religion as usual, that, that would break your norms, but who would change your life forever, who would give you life that would that keep flowing out of you and change you in ways you never thought possible. Finally, John introduces him as a spirit-anointed son of God. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. Now, John's, you know, remember John is writing his gospel at the end of the first century. People have already seen all the other gospels. They've already been out for quite some time. Um, in fact, the entire New Testament has been written except for these 
possibly the epistles from John and the gospel of John. So he's counting on people having had exposure to a number of things. So when he says, I've seen, I've borne witness that this is the Son of God, what, what is he talking about? He talked about the dove descending and all of that. So where did that happen? Because it's not in our text. Well, the Gospels, the Synoptics talk about it. For instance, in Matthew 3, we read that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, look, attention, it actually happened. The heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So you have both the father and you have the spirit testifying that this is the son. This is the son of God. Isaiah 61, 1, prophesying the coming of the Messiah. Remember, Messiah means the anointed one, and it's anointed with the spirit. Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus used these very words. Opened the scroll and read from them when he preached in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. And then he said, this day, these words are fulfilled. He was the fulfillment of this very prophecy. The Old Testament taught that the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one, anointed with the Spirit, would be the Son of God, whom God the Father would appoint king over all the earth. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. So let's remember what's in the Old Testament about the anointed one who is Son of God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God's rules are too restrictive. He who sits in the heavens is worried to death. He's wringing his hands and fretting. He doesn't know what to do. No, he who sits in the heavens laughs. This is silly. He holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, this is God the Father speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, who's the king? Now the son answers. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is actually like a ceremony in ancient times where a king who is father to a son installs his grown son as vice-regent. It's not the day the son was born. It's the day the son assumes his rule. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, however important you think you are. Serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, do him homage, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, happy are all who take refuge in him. The Messiah, the Christ, is the Son of God, and he is the King of kings. Now, the enemies of Jesus actually knew this scripture, and they used it in their illegal nighttime trial of Jesus. They condemned Jesus to death because he confessed to being the messianic king that the Old Testament foretold would come. Listen and, and, and look at what they're saying and what they actually reveal about their own wicked hearts. We read in Matthew 26, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the question references Psalm 2. The answer references Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days comes and the Son of Man comes from heaven and is appointed judge of all the earth and king of an everlasting kingdom of saints. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? They hated Jesus for being the very person that he was, that the scriptures said he would be. Earlier, Jesus had told them in John 8, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And if you die in your sins, there's nothing left but for you to face the eternal wrath of God. How different the fate of those who do believe in him for who he really is. The person that John the Baptist was sent to make known. Making much of Jesus is what John's life was all about because that was the most important issue for humanity. This is the chief concern. And so John the Apostle writes in 1 John 5, this is the testimony, this is the eyewitness record, this is the firsthand testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what are some common misconceptions people you know have about who Jesus is? Do they see Jesus the way John proclaimed him to be? Or do they have some other culturally acceptable view of him? And then since you and I were given a great commission to be witnesses as well, 
what could you do to make the true Jesus known to them? There's a sense in which while John was unique, he was one of a kind, the only forerunner of the Messiah, we are sent out by the same Messiah to make Jesus known. So do you know the true Jesus, the sin-removing Lamb of God, the exalted baptizer with the Spirit and the Spirit-anointed Son of God? And are you making him known? May God help us fulfill our life mission on this greatest concern of all of human history. Let's pray. God, we confess that there are many reasons that we tend to minimize the importance of Jesus. Some of us have known about Jesus ever since childhood, and sometimes we kind of get into a mode of it's, it's old hat to us, it's, it's boring, it's trivial, it's beside the point, and we're living for something else. And Lord, that certainly doesn't match the significance of who Jesus is. Others of us, Lord, have been taught by our family members or by our culture or by our own exploration and have come to conclusions at odds with what the Word of God presents here about who Jesus is. Lord, free us from the lies that we have believed and give us a life that is found only in Jesus. And God, I do pray for those gathered here today who who don't know Jesus as the sin-removing Lamb of God, who don't know Him as the life-giving baptizer with the Spirit, who don't know Him as the exalted Son of God who rules an everlasting kingdom. They're running from Him. They're fighting Him. They're trying to ignore Him. God, break through all their defenses. Pierce their hearts. Draw them to our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, who died to set them free and rose again and now intercedes for his people. Lord, make them part of this kingdom that will extend billions of years into the future and a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God, rescue them before it is too late. And Lord, I pray for us who do know Jesus that would say amen to everything that John said here, that God, we we would pick up the mantle of John the Baptist and we would make him known. Lord, help us see how it can happen. Help us see the people we need to target. Help us, help us make the sacrifices we need to make so that we can be a voice that points people to Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray and for his glory.